0: Welcome to the World of Culture Pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinski. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hey,
1: everybody, and welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason along with Sue Kalinske. Sue, what show have I been binging on?
2: The Sopranos. That's The Sopranos, an easy one.
1: yes. Uh, first time ever I watched The Sopranos and our guest today is best known for his Emmy winning role as Christopher Moldesanti on the legendary show The Sopranos. He's got a brand new podcast called Talking Sopranos. He's also spent a good part of his career as a writer. He wrote five episodes of The Sopranos. He's published his first novel in 2018 and he's got a brand new short story that we'll talk about. Michael Imperioli joins us. Michael, thanks a lot for doing this.
0: Thanks for having me. So, wait. Anyway, this is the first time you've seen The Sopranos? Believe it or not, <laughs> you said Yes. How old are you? I, I am 55. I'm a 55-year-old grown-up man. I'm I just, thought you were going to say 18 or something. All right, <laughs> 55, but you never – where Where were you the last uh, 25 years?
1: Well, yeah, no, it took, me, it took me a while. What's weird, uh, Michael, is that I lived in New York in 99 and 2000. In fact, Sue and I were doing a radio show in New York, and still, when the show caught fire, for some reason, I didn't pick up on it, despite the fact that I love mafia stuff and all that. It was a huge cultural blind spot for me. So finally, I'm one of the cool kids. I
0: have watched The Sopranos. And and uh, so you watch it like this year. So what, how did it seem like now that it's not... It's kind of 20 years later. Or it is so friggin' good, dude. It still holds up. That's oh, good. it
1: holds up so well. You know, I am curious. Why do you think that the world and guys in particular are so fascinated by the mafia, by Cosa Nostra, by, by organized crime? Why, why is that such a romanticized sort of uh, view that we have?
0: Well, I think it's a combination of there's, there's a few factors, right? Remember that the movies that really most people gravitate to are The Godfather, Godfather 2, Goodfellas, Casino. Um, these happen to be made by, you know, some of the greatest people who have ever made movies. You're talking Coppola, Scorsese, De Niro, Pacino, Brando, Joe Pesci. So that has something to do with it. You're talking about stuff that was really executed on the highest level in cinema and in TV with David Chase and James Gandolfini and Edie Falco and everybody else. Um, The allure, I think part of it's the loyalty, you know, Hmm. within this you know, honor among thieves and the loyalty and this kind of family thing against the world. Um, I think about there's something colorful about Italian Americans and their sense of humor, their sense of fashion, their sense of food and their, you know, the sense of family. Um, I think those things, you know, have a, have an appeal somehow.
2: And, you know, Steve, you were saying that, you know, why, why are guys so drawn to it? And I, I, I'm drawn to it, and I've been drawn to that type of genre ever since I'm a little kid. You know, I grew up with James Cagney and Edward G. Robinson, and you know, all those gangster films. Yeah. I think there's there's a there's kind of a danger and a naughtiness, and you know, for most of my adult life before I got married, I was I've always been attracted to bad boys. Hmm. So you know, that was the that's always been the allure to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, listen. They're movies and they're TV shows, you know, so so it's a fantasy and it's us, you know, living out, you know, and delving into the fantasy world. You know, the reality of those things are very violent, very scary, and and you wouldn't want that to be a part of your life, obviously. But if you can be voyeuristic about it, I think there's something exciting about
1: it. When you were making the show, did you hear from guys who were actually in organized crime?
0: A little bit, Yeah.
1: To be honest,
0: Gandolfini once got a call in the middle of the night. He told me this, right? Like at two in the morning. And he picks his, yeah, he had an unlisted number. And he picks up the phone. He goes, hello. And the guy says, hello. And Jim's like, yeah. And the guy says, "Uh, listen, uh, we like what you're doing. (laughs) But remember this. A Don never wears shorts. And he hung up the phone. James never knew who called him because there were scenes of, you know, Jim in the backyard at the barbecue wearing shorts and Uh, somebody had seen it and they wanted to make a point of telling him that a Don doesn't wear shorts. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome.
2: Well, Well, Steve, remember when we were in New York, we interviewed Joe Bonanno Jr. Right. We did. We did. He had a book out and we had him come into the studio. And I remember being kind of nervous talking to him. We kept, but he had such a great sense of humor because we were joking like, oh, are you going to whack us? (laughs) I mean, it was so hacky, but, but he laughed and, and he was, you know, he really came, you know, he was very forthcoming about, you know, the Friday night girlfriends and the wives on Saturday. And it was, it was really cool.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's certainly a colorful life. And, you know, the, uh, I think if, if it stays as a voyeuristic thrill, it's fun. You know, I wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of any of those guys in real life. But uh, luckily, I haven't. So, Christopher
1: Moltisante changed your life. Uh, take us through how you actually got that role.
0: I got that role really because of the casting people, Sheila Jaffe and Georgianne Walken, Georgianne Walken being wife of Christopher Walken. That's right, yeah. But they were they were casting people who had cast me in a number of indie movies, and they were always on my side. You know, they, they would bring me in for anything I was remotely right for. But they had cast me in a movie that Steve Buscemi directed called Tree's Lounge. Hmm. And mm-hmm. several, John Ventimiglia was in that, among several other actors who wound up in The Sopranos. David Chase saw that movie and loved it and he loved the casting and that's why he hired Sheila and Georgian to cast the Sopranos. So I they brought me in and I met David Chase and I read for the character and uh you know the weird thing is like when you when you do a movie or a play you read the script that's the the show and you're mm-hmm. signing on to that when you read a pilot for a TV show you're reading 60 pages of something that eventually is going to be hundreds and hundreds of pages, a thousand pages. So it was really not that easy to understand what the show was for me. I wasn't sure, was it a spoof? Because it was very funny. Yeah. And, you know, the pilot, you don't get the whole scope of where the show is going in the pilot, but I did like it. I thought it was funny. I wasn't sure of how dark it could get besides the, the, you know, the violence that's in there, but you know, how psychologically inc- how complex it was going to get. But I did like the cast. I knew a lot of, I had worked with a lot of those people before Edie Falco and Lorraine and uh, John Ventimiglia and Vinnie Pastor and Tony Sirico. I, you know, I knew most of those actors cause the, you know, the Italian American acting community in New York is kind of small. So I auditioned for David. I thought he hated me because he kept giving me direction in the audition. And he looked kind of David's a very poker face guy. And I thought I was boring him. And I left there thinking, well, that's that ain't going nowhere. I said, who's this guy anyway? He's not even Italian. What does he know about the mob? Chase, (laughs) what kind of name is that? And, And really, the other thing was there there had not really been TV series on cable. So that was a whole HBO's doing a series. What's that going to be? You know, it's like it wasn't, it was very out of the ordinary and no one knew what the hell they were trying to do. So I kind of didn't think much of it. And then they called and said, well, they really like you. They're going to fly you to LA to test for the network, which that had never happened to me before. I I had never done a series. I had done a couple of guest spots on on some shows. Mm -hmm. Mostly I'd made my living doing movies and, and did a lot of theater. So it was a big deal. You get flown to L.A., you put you up in a hotel, and then you have to audition for the network and, uh, you know, all the executives at HBO. And in the waiting room was Edie Falco, who I knew, Lorraine Bracco, who I knew, and then three people auditioning for Tony, Tony Soprano. Michael Rispoli, who wound up playing Jackie Aprile, the mob boss who dies of cancer. Yes. Mm -hmm. Who was a buddy of mine I had worked with. James Gandolfini, who I didn't know, but I had seen in a play and I had heard a lot about through the grapevine. He had a lot of respect among actors. And then another guy who I looked really familiar, but I couldn't place his face. And then Sheila, the casting director, came up to me and said, you see that guy there? That's little Steven Van Zandt. (laughs) And I was like, I knew it immediately because he had the Silvio hair. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, I knew who little Steven looked like with the you know bandanas and everything, yeah. but uh Steven those th- th- those were the three finalists for Tony, little Stephen, Michael Raspoli, and Jim. <laughs> and I went in and auditioned and I got the part.
2: You know, I wanna I, I had heard something and maybe uh, tell me whether whether you had heard this, that when David Chase was shopping around the show, he he went to NBC first and they actually asked him, why does Tony have to see a shrink.
0: (laughs) I I would not, you know, I never heard that specifically, but I wouldn't doubt it. Mm -hmm. He definitely shot, because like I said, HBO and cable were not really doing series. So if you're looking to do a big TV show, that's not at that point, 1997 or 1996, that wasn't the place you'd go. So they did shop it to the networks. Actually, Fox was very close to doing it. Hmm. Um, And I guess ultimately they passed and HBO wanted to call it Family Man. Oh. Luckily, at the same time we were coming out, Family Guy was coming out. So they thought, oh, that's that title is going to be confusing. All right, call it The Sopranos. But HBO wanted to call it Family Man. Um, you know, they may have had those. You know, listen, network executives have – specific notes they might have said just make him a gangster why do we got to do this therapy thing but that was really the key to the whole show yes it was i
2: know i mean it's Uh, like ridiculous i mean you know that's kind of what made him such a sympathetic character
0: Right. And so that, yeah, they may have, listen, that show never would have worked on network TV because it, they would have had to tone down the language sure, sure. the violence, right. nudity and all that stuff. And, and, and that was kind of what, what, part of why the show was a hit, I think was that we were bringing stuff you'd go to see in a movie theater into the living room. You know yeah. what I mean? You, the, you go to see Scarface or the new Scorsese or casino in a movie theater, but now you can sit at home and turn on the Sopranos and get that experience.
1: So you're doing a uh, podcast now called Talking Sopranos. You're doing it with Steve Sharipa, who played Bobby Bacala. Um, t- describe the describe the podcast and what you're what you're accomplishing with it.
0: So the podcast is a episode. Uh, you know, every podcast episode we break down an episode and we go into very specific detail, scene by scene, about you know all our impressions of the show, what was what it was like, what we re- remember from behind the scenes, and some a little bit analyzing it like a fan what we like about it what we don't we examine all the references the music cinematography the actors other stuff the actors have done all the cultural references um for a lot of the shows we have guests uh actors a lot we've had lorraine we've had edie we've had um steve buscemi we've had uh, a lot of the directors, like we've had Peter Bogdanovich. Wow. Um, we've had uh, Alan Coulter. We're going to have David Chase. He's coming on. Uh, we've had the cinematographer. We had the sound man. We had wow. the casting people. So we want it to be a really comprehensive view of all the people who made it what it was. It's a, it's kind of the ultimate look behind the scenes. Yeah.
2: Now, I didn't realize that you wrote as many episodes as you did of the series and I guess it started in the second season. At what point did you say to yourself, Hey, I'd like to do one I'd like to write one of these? I'm gonna see I'm gonna pitch it, you know, pitch an episode and see what happens. How did it come about?
0: When 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 we started shooting see, so you shoot we shot the pilot in the summer of ninety seven. By the end of the year the show gets picked up and we come back Ne- the summer of 98 to shoot season one. And script after script, this show started get you know was getting better and better. Every time I'd get a new script, I was just blown away by the characters, by the depth of it. And I fell in love with all the characters in the show. Um, so in between season one and season two, I wrote a spec Soprano script. At the same time, a movie that I co-wrote was coming out, which was Spike Lee's Summer of Sam. So oh, yeah. I invited David to the premiere, and I gave him the spec script. And through those, I got the job uh, yeah. to start writing for the show.
1: So I want to ask you about a couple of uh, specific episodes. I don't want to spoil the podcast, but there are a couple of episodes I, I want to ask you about specifically. You won't spoil it. We've got, okay. we got
0: lots of lots of stuff to do on that. Okay.
1: So the, the most um, – tough to watch the most emotional episode for me was where adriana tells christopher about collaborating with the fbi and then what (laughs) happened to her um that was a that was that was for me the most emotional most gripping um saddest episode of the sopranos what do you think
0: well for me as an actor You know, um, it certainly was about as much emotion as I could ever pack into a scene. You know, like at that moment, when she tells him that's the reality, life is never going to be the same again for them. And he knows that. It's like the stakes have just gotten so high, it's become life and death. And yeah, it is. And I think for the audience, people really – people really were rooting for Christopher and Adriana. They, 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 on they, um, they did love each other. I mean, Christopher had a lot of problems and was not always the best husband or boyfriend. Well, boyfriend, they never got married, but, um, I think the audience really rooted for them as a couple. um, and liked both of their characters, especially Adriana, I think, because she, she was so good-hearted and so yeah, loving. She was think, she
1: was a great character.
0: Yeah, I mean, Christopher had his bad side, So, but but I think Adriana was really beloved by the audience, and it was hard for everybody. You know, and it was hard for us as a, as a company because when someone would get killed off the show, you knew you weren't going to be seeing them at work all the time. Mm. And, and Dre DiMatteo... Mm. You know, it was one of the best performers I've ever worked with, and we hmm. we trusted each other a lot. Uh, we went to some really intense places, some really fun places together as actors, and we always had each other's back. And um, you know, it was at that point it was really hard knowing that that was the end of the road for them. Yeah. Okay. Episode in the
1: final season. Uh, you're shot, Tony. Hold your nose. Closed. No, I wasn't shot. Oh, how, how,
0: what happened? We crashed. Crashed. crashed right. okay. um, and you're kind of bleeding out at this point. I'm really hurt. Yeah, bleeding out and also going through like drug withdrawal. I mean, maybe he had drug problems too, but he's bleeding. Yeah, he's, his injuries are really... But Tony, so did, the Tony did Tony to either, kill
1: you or did he do the humane thing?
0: No, he could have I mean, the humane thing would have been call the you know, mm-hmm. the ambulance right. and, uh, <laughs> get a doctor that that would be the humane thing no, when uh, Christopher reveals in that moment that he's having problems with drugs again mm-hmm. right? And, I think that, and, that, and this is after he knows his girlfriend flipped, you know and that was a mess, so Tony's looking at his own at the vulnerability of this guy and how that could affect him and bite him in the ass, and it's a it's it's a moment of self preservation for Tony and selfless selfishness.
2: As as the character Christopher, because um, I know Tony definitely felt that you were going to flip, you know, and you were going to rat him out. As as the character of Christopher, do you think you would have?
0: No. If he would have, he would have done it with Adriana, right? Mm that would have been the time to do it. Cause they had the opportunity together and they mm-hmm. talked about it. All right, we'll just go off into the sunset and witness protection and do what we got to do and, and live together and stay together. And he chooses, no, he chooses his life with the mob and with Tony and his loyalty. So I don't think he had the opportunity.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Michael, I got to tell you, we read your uh, short story and is it Yassiri? Is Yassiri. that the way you're
0: saying? Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, a name of a woman.
1: So, tell me about this story. What
0: what what is it? It's is it part of a novel? The story is, um, it's a anthology. So the published the people that published my novel, uh, "The Perfume Burned His Eyes," is Akashic Books. So they have a series uh, called the Drug Chronicles. So they did the Heroin Chronicles, they did the Cocaine Chronicles, the Marijuana Chronicles. This is the Nicotine Chronicle. So each one explores a drug and they get a bunch of writers, um, a lot of really good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was in very nice company there. But um, And the theme is this drug and they write a short story. So this one was nicotine and... You know, I, I didn't know what to really write about. And then I was like, well, what about like the origins of the, the industry and tobacco and the mm-hmm. new world and all that? So I kind of made it, you know, like an allegory for colonialism. Um, I lived in Puerto Rico for a year. So I, I set it, you know, in, in really it's set in San Juan um, and, you know, just kind of, let the imagination run. And I, I like stories about like magic and witchcraft and the the paranormal. So I got to play around with that and, you know, just uh, had some fun with it.
2: So I thought what I thought was very interesting is that you wrote the main character in the point of view of a, of a woman. And was that always the way you pictured this to be?
0: You know, uh, I think for me, in the novel that I wrote, was from the point of view of a 16-year-old boy. When I started it, I tried writing it more from a third person, from like a narrate, a narration, like an observer, and I and, and I couldn't really find it. Maybe because I'm an actor, it's easier to just get in the character's head and write from that point of view. So I find that to be a good engine for me as a writer. So that's why I chose to write it from that point of view
1: and are all those things like a vidente and an interventor and a torsador are they all real things
0: they are and they aren't they are in some ways but i kind of take a lot of liberties but they are yeah you know but i take a lot of liberties and kind of invent my own system of magic within
2: we were you a smoker
0: or are you I a smoker? Was. So my publisher um Johnny Temple who who founded the company Akashic Books called me one day said do you, you do you smoke or have you ever smoked? And I said I used to smoke. I don't smoke anymore. He goes, "Okay, I'll get back to you." <laughs> that was him kind of auditioning me for the the job of writing the story although I didn't write it about myself smoking. I I smoked I I started smoking late at like 26. Hmm. Because I had a girlfriend who rolled her own cigarettes, and I found that very cool. And um, I started t- you know, having one, one, two, three a day, and then all of a sudden I was hooked, and I smoked for about 10 years.
2: How did you quit?
0: There's a really good book called, it's a, kind of a corny title, The Easy Way to Stop Smoking by a guy named Alan Carr. And it's helped millions of people stop smoking, and it helped me.
2: Do you know, I smoked, I think the first time I had a cigarette, I, I was in sixth grade. I grew up in Long Island with a lot of rough crowd. I've got like nine years on you. So I grew up, everyone smoked. My parents smoked, all their friends smoked, all my, you know, my, my sister smoked. So I get cut to many, many years later. I, you know, just like I, it, it's something that was so difficult for me to, 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 quit and stay off of it and I got a writing gig and it was the first time writing on a tv series where I was writing by myself because I had a writing partner and We're I sure. said to myself it was uh Ellen DeGeneres's second sitcom not the one where she um not it was the second one where she was a um it was called Ellen again she played a guidance yeah. counselor and Jim, Jim Gaffigan was was in yeah. it and Cloris Leachman that. so um so right before I went off to write my script, you know, they give you a couple of weeks to go home and write. I said, I am going to quit smoking while I'm writing the script because Hmm. it's going to be the hardest thing in the world for me to do. And if I can do this, I will never smoke again. And I never smoked again.
0: Hmm. Wow. That's a great
1: story. So, so Michael, I, I love the, uh, the story and I'm a, I'm a big reader and the author it reminds me of um, is Gabriel Garcia Marquez.
0: Well, wow, that's, se- that's a crazily gigantic compliment. It uh, seems
1: to me you create that that world, that sort of bubble, um, and your story happens inside it, the way a lot of the uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez stories do. But that's what? Who do you read? Who, who have been your influences oh, when read. it comes to
0: writing? Tons of stuff, you know. I like Gabriel uh, Garcia Marquez a lot. I like uh, Roberto Bolaño a lot. I like Manuel Puig in terms of, like, Latin American writers. A guy named Luis Negron, who's a Puerto Rican writer from San Juan. Um, I like Isaac Bishevis Singer. Um, I like Mary Gateskill, Joyce Carol Oates. Those are some of my favorites. Wow, Um, yeah. But a lot of it was... You know, uh, spending so much time in Puerto Rico kind of I I just I have to see the place when I write. It's really important to me. And that Hmm. place, you know, just stays with me so much. So it was it was kind of easy to set it there. And I do like magical realism as a as a genre. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the combination of those things has a little bit of that flavor, certainly nowhere near as, as you know as great as as Marquez, but uh, actually Gabriel Garcia Marquez's son directed a Soprano episode. Oh, really? Mm. Rodri- and he directs a lot of uh, TV and I think film now, Rodrigo Garcia. Yeah. Interestingly enough. Um, but if you like that, you should read the uh, Perfume Burned His Eyes. It's a, a coming of age story set in the 70s in New York about a 16-year-old boy who winds up becoming like a gopher for Lou Reed in one of Lou's really crazy drugged out periods, but cre- creative period as well.
2: So I read the book you and, did. um, you know, it, 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 was, um, so familiar to me cause, you know, again, I didn't grow up, I didn't grow up in Manhattan, but I did live in Queens. And then, you know, I grew up in Long Island, moved to Queens and then moved into Manhattan. But in my you know teenage early twenties, um, Big Lou Reed fan, um, you know, hanging out at CBGBs, all of those, you know, uh, Max's Kansas City. Yeah. So wow. that whole world was my world. But how did you come upon writing about Lou Reed?
0: Well, Lou and I became friends uh, in around two thousand. Um, I actually met him a couple of times before that, but he didn't really he didn't know who I was, and I think it was. You know, and um, it was just kind of in passing because I lived in the same in the village where he lived in the- in the '90s, late '80s. Uh, but then after the Sopranos hit, I was uh, in. Uh, I got um, I got tickets to his concert to his publicist, and then she came up to me and said, "Oh, Lou wants to see you backstage." <laughs> I didn't even know he knew I was there or knew who I was, and it turned out he had become a big fan. And Lou and I ha, uh, were involved in some charities uh, together, like the Jazz Foundation of America and Tibet uh, Tibet House, Tibet Fund. As Lou is into Buddhism, as I am. And, um, yeah, we got to know each other. So when he died, so I started the book three months before he died, and he wasn't in the book. I was just writing a coming-of-age story kind of to relate to my own son, who was 16 at the time, was going through, you know, 16-year-old problems. And I, I, I was, I wrote, started writing the book as a way of connecting to that age and that mindset again. I said it in the mid-'70s just because I have a fondness for that era in mm-hmm. New York. Mm-hmm. And then three months into the writing, Lou died. And it hit me, that was 2013, uh, and it hit me, on a number of levels, you know, as a fan, as an artist, as a New Yorker and, a, and as a friend. And, um, you know, I was kind of mourning him. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, how about he's in the story? And him and the mm-hmm. kid kind of have this relationship and, um, you know, as like a kind of like a quasi-father figure, but almost like an artistic mentor. So that was how the story came about.
1: So Sue tells me, I, I didn't know this, Do you also make music? yeah yeah I've I've uh what what can't you do are you just like
0: <laughs> I can't draw or paint you should you have do- a variety show really? I can't do you show, do you knit, knit do you knit also no, and knit I and crochet sew. no I, I when I started studying acting um very quickly I you know in New York in the 80s it was a lot of cross-pollinization between the art world like Basquiat had a rock band with Vincent Gallo, who was also a painter who went on to be a filmmaker and an actor. And, you know, the the performance art movement kind of came out of the punk rock movement and a lot of punk musicians were doing independent films. And I came kind of of age in that. So I started playing music. I started playing in a band, you know, right after I started studying acting and um, did it intermittently throughout my life. Started writing. I started producing theater in my early twenties directing theater. So Mm. I I was always doing a lot of things. It wasn't like after I became successful as an actor that I decided to like, I'm going to try this or that It it, from the beginning. It was always, you know, uh, there was a lot of that among my peers, you know, but this band, the current band Zopa was formed in 2006 and it's a trio and, um, We released our first album this summer, although we recorded it uh, uh, several years ago, but it's kind of just been sitting on the shelf. And um, we released it this summer and got some really good responses, and we have some offers for gigs when gigs start happening again. And um, I can't wait to start playing again.
2: I mean, it's, it's so nostalgic for me, you know, because it really does have that, has a lot of that punk rock type of feel to it. And um, you've got an amazing voice <laughs> and you play lead guitar. I am um, completely impressed with you oh, and so, right. on so many levels.
0: Uh, yeah. I work with two really good uh, musicians. Actually the bass player in my band, Elijah Amiton is also a singer and his, you know, he writes his own music as well. He does the theme song to the talking sopranos podcast, but ah, um, nice, nice. Uh-huh. he does his electronic stuff as well. But um, yeah, it, it's a New York f- sound. I mean, that's, that's, where we you know it's a new some of the song actually there's one song there's two songs on the record that were written in the 80s wow um, by you know they kind of go that far back before I was with these two guys but that I you know we kind of uh, developed it together, but the, the bones of them are, have been kicking around since like the late eighties. Um, so there's, that. there's definitely a New York downtown rock.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Listen, I want to, I want to kind of close
1: things with a question that I'm sure is going to be very, very hacky to you. <laughs> 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 Just, this is so hacky. All right. But, What do you think the last episode
0: of The Sopranos means? You know, uh, when it first happened, when I first saw it, and for many years, I thought that Tony died. And then I heard some interviews with David Chase. Um, And now I don't think I think it is what it is. It's like there's nothing to interpret. It's ends right there. It's like, the, you know, you're watching, you know, when you used to watch movies w- on a projector and it yep. was actually film and the film <laughs> would run out, mm-hmm. that was the end. <laughs> That's the end. It's the end of the story. Uh, I, there's nothing else to extrapolate. You don't think they got shot right after. I used to, but now. But after hearing some of David's interviews, and he's got, we're going to interview him uh, next month on, this, on the podcast, and maybe we'll get a definitive answer from him excellent well listen it is
1: uh it's been a lot of fun the podcast is called talking sopranos uh the novel is called the perfume burned his eyes and the brand new short story Yasiri
0: is in which that's in uh the nicotine chronicles The nicotine chronicles that just came out uh this uh in september
1: excellent well listen
0: man it's been really
1: fun appreciate talking to you congratulations on everything you got going on and hopefully we can do this again down the line
0: well i really appreciate you guys taking the time and
1: and there you have it michael imperioli who is just mega mega talented i had no idea the writing i had no idea the music I knew him as Christopher Multisante but that was really it. I mean, he's he's really talented.
2: I know. Well, you know, whenever we're having we have a guest on, I do a lot of research, and you do just, a
1: lot of research. I will credit you for that.
2: It just didn't stop. It was like what? And now he's in a band. He wrote a book. He wrote a short story. He's in a band. I mean, it was uh, pretty uh, pretty impressive.
1: Do you ever write like uh, like that? Because you're a writer by trade. Do you ever write like stories and novels and stuff like that?
2: Um. You know, I've I actually have something that I've been writing for quite some time, um, which is kind of about my growing up. So yeah. it's it's definitely biographical. Um, but I've written a lot of uh, like essays. Um, you know, like when I when I um, rescued th- that my dog Sam, I yeah. wrote a piece about that. So I've I've published a lot of pieces like that. Um, but um, I've never written a short story. I'm working on a memoir. A memoir?
1: Yeah, I call it a memoir. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's about all the clothes you've worn throughout your life?
1: Yeah, no, it's a memoir. It's about all of the strange and crazy turns. Who would not want to read that story?
2: I I would like to read that story? No,
1: it's it's a good story. It's a good story. So, uh, what have you done in the last three? We even talked in 3 weeks. What have you done?
2: So, what have I done? Um I Go was... ahead and
1: say it. What do you mean? Go ahead and say it. What? You were watching
2: election results. Of course I was. So I've been very, you know, I was very anxious. Yep. So, you know, there was that. So a lot of cursing. So I, I've been cursing mm-hmm. a lot. Sure. Uh, a lot of drinking. Nice. Um, a lot of ice cream eating. What about uh, flour? Flour? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Total flour. <laughs> Um uh yeah, I'm not into any of you know like uh, all the like the pens and stuff like that. I I'm I'm old school.
1: You're old school, um, you just but smoking you're like one smoking hit.
2: smoking joints and smoking out of a pipe. But right you're like a pipe. one
1: hit girl, right?
2: No. Oh. <laughs> No, I'm a mini hit girl. You are. Yeah. Well, you yeah. needed it
1: last week. Well, I'm glad it worked out to your advantage.
2: Well, also because, you know, I used to smoke cigarettes, so I kind of get a little bit of that Jones when I smoke a joint, you know, just the whole, the whole, you know, inhaling and holding a cigarette. It just feels good,
1: you know? Yeah, it's it's, it's an interesting habit. Yeah, I, I will admit that I have uh, once or twice uh, used uh, cannabis. Okay. One, once or twice. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm going to make that stunning admission.
2: <laughs> um. So basically, you know, I've been golfing. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. How's the game?
2: It's okay. You yeah. know, it's good. It's bad. It's good. It's bad. It's like, it's very inconsistent. So um, I'm actually taking a little bit of a break. We but, went uh, to, uh, last
1: week, we were in Carefree, Arizona mm-hmm. at a place called Savannah, which is like, uh, it's got those big saguaro, saguaro cactuses all over the place. Mm-hmm. I think I'm saying that right, Saguaro, the ones with the big arms like you see in old westerns.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like comical.
1: Exactly. They're <laughs> everywhere at this place and pools and soaking. And I was just telling you, there's like this soaking circuit where you go from 100 degrees to 105 degrees to cold plunge and then back to 100 degrees and you just keep repeating it. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, just just so relaxing. so rela- It's exactly what I needed last week.
2: So where is it near in Arizona? Carefree is north of Scottsdale. Okay, it's pretty.
1: Oh, yeah, it's really, really nice. Um, Strongly recommend uh, the place is called Savannah. Uh, We're always looking for joints like that. And all COVID safe and all that stuff, separation. Were
2: were there a lot of people there?
1: They only are at uh, 25% capacity. Okay. So you don't have to be in anybody's face, which is not what you want to do right now.
2: Right, right, right. Um, Well, Sue... Yes. I'm going to call that a show. It was a great show.
1: Imperioli, fantastic. Appreciate his time. Thank you very much for listening. We appreciate it. Please uh, subscribe, rate, and review. That's really important to us. We appreciate that. And the Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by Husu. Jacob and Ronnie. That's right. The law offices of Jacob Imrani. You've seen his billboards. You drive around town. You've seen his TV commercials. You've he- heard him on the radio with me. Now, I've known Jacob for years, and he puts passion and compassion into each and every client. Over the last few years, Jacob was getting so many calls from uh, second people who are having second opinions, want second opinions. So he created a second opinion department. So if you currently got an accident case, or you're trying to deal with the insurance company on your own, call Jacob for a free, that's right, free, second opinion. Jacob and Ronnie has been doing this for 24 years. You can count on him and his team and their expertise to properly guide you through the process for a free, that's right, free, consultation. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. 844-24-JACOB or Sue, the catchy jingle,
2: all right. This is from our good friend Kathy Ladman. Oh.
0: Accident or injury? Called Jacob
2: and Ronnie. Called Jacob. Oh, fan- Kathy. Okay. Now there's a little bit of a story that I have to tell you. She, okay. when she and her husband first heard the jingle, yeah, they thought it was Jacob and Ronnie. Right? <laughs> so then, when at the end it says "called Jacob," they looked at each other like. Why? What happened to Ronnie? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm
1: glad they, they figured that out.
2: <laughs> glad they
1: fig- I love Kathy. She's the best. We've had her on the show. She's been on the show.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah she came on right. with uh, Rain Pryor.
1: That's right. That's right. Uh, well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. There is your Culture Pop podcast, Sue. Wonderful job today. You really, uh, you go to town. You research uh, people. I don't have as much time. You really, you read his novel. You listened to his music. You went all out. So thank you. you uh, it's very, very, very much appreciated. All right. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate that. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time on the Culture Pop Podcast. Be
0: sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next week for an all-new episode of Culture Pop.